Welcome back to our first Endoscopy News podcast of 2021. This time we're looking at the the risk of bowel cancer in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. There have been several recent studies looking at the association and looking at the risk factors. And we're also going to hear from Lauren Derricks, one of the authors of a paper recently published in GIE, looking at the risk of repeated finding of low-grade dysplasia in the colon and the subsequent risk of bowel cancer or high-grade dysplasia. Before we go to Lorando, let's first mention a paper by Anouk Wiegnans, also from the Netherlands, published uh, around Christmas in the journal Gastroenterology. This was the first systematic review and meta-analysis of all factors that potentially impact the risk of bowel cancer in IBD. They found 164 studies and looked at 31 potential prognostic factors which could affect the risk. They found that the strongest predictive factor was having extensive colitis. More moderate predictors of high-grade dysplasia or bowel cancer was having low-grade dysplasia. And of course, we're soon going to go to Lauren, who looked at recurrent diagnosis of low-grade dysplasia. Another moderate predictor of bowel cancer was having colonic strictures, uh, PSC, post-inflammatory polyps, family history of bowel cancer, and having ulcerative colitis rather than having Crohn's disease. Now, only weak predictors was uh, having a previous colonic segment resected, and eploidy, which, as you know, is when you find bits of chromosomes breaking off and getting stuck in the wrong place. Mind you, uh, there weren't many studies looking at that, of course. Being men, uh, and of course we knew that, men always get everything worse, it seems. Having a younger onset of inflammatory bowel disease and histological inflammation in biopsies. They were all weak predictors. Now, weak protective factors uh, was having had colonoscopic surveillance. And I think that was a surprise, really. You would have thought having being on a surveillance program would be a very strong protective effect. But um, there were the problem was in this study that the definition of surveillance colonoscopy seemed to vary between studies remarkably. I mean, I thought you were only talking about one thing here. And there was also con- considerable heterogeneity between the studies and uh, very conflicting results in the subgroup analysis. So on, on pooled univariate analysis, there was a reduced risk of developing cancer if you're on a surveillance program. Uh, but this protective effect was not observed in the multivariable analysis. So there we have it. Um, other factors with a weak protective effect was being on a 5-ASA or being on thyropurine. Smoking was protective, <laughs> remarkably increases the risk of all the other cancers, but it seemed to reduce slightly reduce the risk of bowel cancer in patients with colitis. Uh, another protective uh, uh, drug was statins, and we know, of course, that statins have anti-cancer effects. And most interestingly, there were some factors we were not associated with any alteration in the risk of cancer and that was for example having had a previous appendicectomy finding p53 mutations in the mucosa perhaps because that is um, so common anyway 
the race of the patient didn't seem to make any difference. Being on folic acid or calcium supplements didn't make any difference. Aspirin and non-steroidals didn't seem to make any difference either. And of course, we know already that aspirin and non-steroidals protect best against proximal bowel cancers rather than distal bowel cancers. Now, Lorraine Derricks is on the line and she's one of the co-authors of the paper entitled uh, Increased Risk of Hygrodysplasia and Colorectal Cancer in, in IBD Patients with Recurrent Low-Grade Dysplasia. This uh, uh, paper was published in GIE 2020. The reference is on the website, of course. Now, thanks for taking the time to speak to us, Lauren. I know that you're currently busy on secondment with John Lees in Edinburgh. Now, can I first ask you about the background to your recent GIE paper? Uh, I understand that it's based on trawling through thousands of histopathology reports from many different hospitals in the Netherlands. Now, in the UK, as far as I know, each hospital have their own report using their own patient identifier and there's absolutely no way to access the information centrally. Now, is the histopathology reporting system different in the Netherlands? Since 1991, we register all pathology reports central in the Netherlands. So there's one system and everyone uses use that system. Um, so we can go back till 1991 and find all pathology reports. Brilliant. So you can track patients through the system. Yes, more or less, because it's uh, pseudo-analyzed uh, into, the, into the database. But you do lose some data, don't you? Yes, because we searched in the pathology database and we only have the pathology reports. So what we know is the clinical data from the pathology report. We know, well, the age, the type of IBD. We can extract the uh, extent of inflammation from the pathology report but we don't have the, all the endoscopy reports. And that's a disadvantage of the paper, I think. At the end of the day, you don't necessarily know if that low-grade dysplasia came from a 5-millimeter polyp or a 50-millimeter flat lesion, or was even flat dysplasia in an unremarkable patch of, uh, of colonic mucosa. Yeah, well, we don't know that exactly. So that's one of the reasons that we are phenotyping these patients into more detail. And whose idea was it to track after uh, low-grade dysplasia, which is, which is a hard target in gastroenterology? The histopathologists find it difficult to make a certain diagnosis of low-grade dysplasia because it is very difficult to distinguish low-grade dysplasia from inflammation. Well, because I think that it's really important to see what the outcome is of these patients with IBD and low-grade dysplasia. And the literature was very limited about this group of patients. And I think that most gastroenterologists do have a patient with IBD and low-grade dysplasia or multiple patients in their practice or in their clinic. I think this is a really good first step to move forwards. And it's one of the things on, on all the colitis um, guidelines. It's one of the outstanding targets for future research. Yes, that's right. And also when you look in the, the British surveillance guideline, they advise or they recommend to do a yearly surveillance after dysplasia or low-grade dysplasia is found. But when you look at the evidence for this recommendation, well, actually, the, the evidence is really scarce or really low to, to recommend this. Well, there is a stop time after five years, isn't it, in the BSG guidelines? If you haven't found any f further low-grade dysplasia after five years, which is a long time, then, uh, then you can drop the surveillance back to baseline again. Well, what we found is that when a patient has for three years or longer no 
recurrent dysplasia that this patient that the risk doesn't increase that much in a longer follow-up period so that maybe a better time will be to follow up these patients yearly for three years rather than for five years. Maybe you've read that paper as well from Bas Oldenburg from Utrecht. Uh, he published it a few years ago in GUT and he looked in low-risk patients when they had two negative uh, colonoscopies, whether it was allowed to reduce the surveillance interval. And they found a really low risk in these patients who had two negative colonoscopies. So based on that uh, article in the Netherlands, our guideline says that when patients is in the lower moderate risk category, that when a patient has two negative colonoscopies, that, it, that the patients can go in a lower risk category. In practical terms, though, it, it sometimes becomes difficult because um, you get things like, well, you know, of course we made the diagnosis of low-grade dysplasia, but this was in a little five millimeter polyp, which we think was sporadic, and we removed it anyway. The gut feeling of everyone is, I think, that when you have a small sporadic polyp and you remove it, that the risk is gone, but actually we don't know. In the paper, you try to disentangle the problems of sporadic adenoma and colitis-related adenoma from the data set, didn't you? Yes, we looked at um, the maximum extent of inflammation and based on the maximum extent, we determined whether a polyp was sporadic or whether it was colitis associated. And what we found was that the risk was actually not di different between these two groups. And this is a surprising finding. Do you find that there's no different in the risk of these patients developing cancer in the future? Uh, yes, we didn't find a difference. We, well, we looked at advanced neoplasia, so high-grade dysplasia or colorectal cancer. And we also looked at the recurrent low-grade dysplasia risk, and that was also not different between these two groups. It is surprising, but when you look in the literature, I think that uh, in one study that the risk of sporadic adenomas, this group of patients was similar to non-sporadic adenomas. And, and another study from, from Utrecht as well, um, they compared patients with IBD with a sporadic adenoma um, compared to patients with non-IBD and a sporadic adenoma. And they found that the risk to develop uh, a neoplasia in future, that it was uh, I thought 11% versus 5%, so that it was uh, much higher in the sporadic adenoma group in IBD patients compared to non-IBD patients. And it's difficult to explain this, isn't it? What's the mechanism for it? Colitis, you of course have the field cancerization theory. I'm not sure whether that also applies to sporadic adenomas in IBD, but it might be an, an hypothesis. Yes, this is, this is the conclusion I come to. I, I, I always thought that in colitis, you get you can get a field change, which you may not necessarily detect down H&E stains down the microscope. The, the changes are molecular, they're, they're in the DNA. And maybe the same thing happens in, in normal people. Actually, by the time we start to develop little atinomas, there's been changes, there's been translocations of chromosomes in the stem cells going back and forth. And we're seeing the the, the beginning of a process we've been rolling on for for maybe a couple of decades. Yes, yes, uh, that could be an hypothesis. I, I think that as well, indeed. If I let you in on a secret, Lorraine, I had my own colonoscopy and I thought at the time, this is check on my biological age. Now, in your data set, you've got 4,284 patients with colitis and low-grade dysplasia. But how many patients were there in the total data set? How common is it? What we do know is that we have approximately 
90,000 patients with IBD in the Netherlands till 2010. So maybe there were, let's say, 80,000 at that moment. Um, but still, that's then 55%. But may I, I tell you one other one about one of our previous studies, where which um, under or supports this idea, because we have done also a study in pouch patients uh, to look at colorectal cancer in pouch patients. The the major risk factor was when patients had a previous colorectal cancer or a previous dysplasia. Um, and for these patients, the risk was 50 times increased. And of course, these patients would have had surgery but, uh, and then the pouch reconstruction because there's no dysplasia in the pouch. So we can safely do that. Field cancerization is an important, important explanation for this risk in, in patients with a pouch. Could you, from your data set, Laurent, could you work out if some patients had multifocal low-grade dysplasia within the same colon? Yes, we looked at this or we tried to look at this, but there were so many mistakes in it that we decided not to conclude anything. In the paper, you alluded to a certain subgroup of patients that seemed to be more likely to get cancer. And who were these patients? Yes, that's what we have uh, investigated in the previous study that we found were male sex, a higher age at low-grade dysplasia, and the cutoff value was above 55 years. And the last risk factor was when patients were diagnosed in an academic center. Laurent, if you're diagnosed in an academic center, you do worse. Um, yes, but I think that I, uh, that's because the pathologists have more expertise to uh, diagnose the, the low-grade dysplasia. And that would explain it, wouldn't it? If if you overcall low-grade display, if it's actually inflammation you're looking at, then these patients are going to do fine, aren't they? Because they don't actually have dysplasia. It's just inflammation. So how do you think that the guidelines should change now? Well, I think it's very important to do your first colonoscopy after one year when you have low-grade dysplasia. Um, I strongly recommend that because what we saw is that the recurrent lesions or the uh, advanced lesions developed approximately in one third of the patients within one year. So I think that this first endoscopy is really important. And I'm not sure whether, whether everyone is doing that in practice. So, and the other thing what you might question um, is whether we need to survey all these patients for five years or whether we can also Survey, survey them for three years with a one-year follow-up or one-year surveillance interval. I think that in the, when you have three times in a row a negative colonoscopy, um, that the risk doesn't increase that much, that the fourth and the fifth colonoscopy um, contribute that much. So certainly in Leeds, we, we would do random colonic biopsies and colonic dye staining in patients with PSC. Because if you don't look for flat dysplasia, you'll never find it. Well, it's difficult to say that's based on this paper because we haven't investigated it. We also don't take uh, regular or standard biopsies when we are doing the surveillance colonoscopies. And, but I think the difficulty with patients with low-grade dysplasia is that you often don't know anymore where the exact location of the low-grade dysplasia is. So where are you going to biopsy then? 
Great. I think I think we covered a lot of material there. And it puts the UK to shame a little bit because we should have a linked up histopathology database too, for goodness sake. In the Netherlands, we are not doing it in endoscopy. Everyone has their own system and we cannot look into the different systems. So that's the disadvantage of the Netherlands. But we have it for the pathology report. We could learn from you for the endoscopy and, and you could learn from us from, for the pathology report. Now, thanks to Loran, who finishes on a diplomatic note, highlighting that uh, there is really good and bad on both sides of the English Channel. You know, I really can't understand why the UK found the Brexit negotiations so difficult. In the discussion, Loran mentioned her paper in the journal Gastroenterology from 2014, uh, looking at the risk of uh, dysplasia in patients having undergone alienal pouch anastomosis. And I decided to look this paper up for a bit more information. Now, there's not much data on the risk of uh, cancer developing and high-grade dysplasia developing in pouches after previous uh, IPAAs. There was a previous study from the Cleveland Clinic in the US published in Gastroenterology in 2010, and they reported a cumulative incidence of pouch dysplasia, which included not just adenomatous polyps, but squamous cell dysplasia, adenocarcinomas, as well as uh, three lymphomas even. Anyway, after 15 years, 2% had developed dysplasia within the pouch, and this increased to 5% after 25 years. Now, of course, this was a single-center study, but it included 3,200 patients. But the authors didn't look at the risk factors for developing dysplasia, as far as I can tell. So that's where Laurent's paper from Gastroenterology 2014 comes handy. Uh, and they found the records of 1,200 colitics who had undergone a pouch procedure. Only 16 of these 1,200 patients actually developed a cancer, a bowel cancer within their pouch. Uh, but those who did, naturally, this developed that was called the anal transitional zone, which you know is the segment between the dentate line and the surgical anastomosis, of course. Anyway, they found that the risk of developing dysplasia was 1% at 5 years, 2% at 10 years, 3.7% at 15 years, and 2% uh, had developed cancer at that point, and 7% at 20 years, at which time 3% had cancer. Now, interestingly, uh, Loran didn't find a, a particular link between a, an increased risk of dysplasia and, for example, pouchitis or, or a long duration of IBD or even PSC. Uh, but the risk of cancer after 15 years was 30% uh, in the su subgroup who had a, pr uh, a previous bowel cancer. So clearly, if you have had a bowel cancer previously, even a small rim of normal, stable-looking mucosa left at the bottom end of the anal pouch poses a substantial risk of cancer. Now, if that is not a, an, a strong argument for the cancer field hypothesis, then I don't know what is. Anyway, thanks for listening. That concludes uh, today's podcast. Now stay safe, and uh, I'll catch up with you again in a couple of weeks' time. Bye for now.